Well, I have this one act where I'm a snake peeling my skin off. Um, and it's a weird act, you know, it's not meant to be a pretty lady burlesque. It's meant to be like kind of gross. And you're like, Oh, like, it's like watching someone peel a scab, but hopefully beautiful in its grotesqueness. And I wear a mask for that act. And I, I hold the mask on with a mouthpiece. So I can't really talk or make noise when I'm performing the act. But there was this woman in the front row of a gig and she just kept going, this is weird. Is this burlesque? This is weird. This, what is this? Is this burlesque like over and over and over again? And I just wanted to, if I had had the ability, I would have just looked at her and said, yes, this is weird. You are absolutely correct. This is weird. Like, we've got that. So we can move on. It is weird. It is burlesque. Now just sit and watch it and see what happens because you might like it. That was Eva LaFiva, a burlesque performer and belly dancer I spoke with in arguably Chicago's loudest neighborhood. It'll add some little flavor to the background, yeah. but it'll give you a flavor of Wrigleyville and what the theater sounds. <laughs> yeah. Anyone listening, this is what Wrigleyville sounds like. <laughs> One thing that came up in a lot of my conversations with burlesque performers is the notion that there seems to be a fair amount of confusion within the general public regarding what exactly burlesque even is. And Eva is far from the only performer to encounter that confusion mid-performance. This is weird. There's also a current trend here in my home city of Chicago that has greatly added to the frequency of these awkward encounters. In Chicago right now, there's a lot of like nightclubs, restaurants, bars that are essentially hiring burlesque dancers, you know, for... doing sort of like surprise burlesque, I've been told. That yes, that's a big thing. There's a lot of pop up burlesque. There's this overarching theory amongst a lot of bar owners that there's going to be this moment where all of a sudden a burlesque dancer steps out and like a hush falls over the room and they start performing and it's just a spellbinding thing. But normally what happens is. Your music starts playing, you start going out there and everyone's looking around like, who is this half naked bitch that's trying to like get up on the stage and do something, you know, it's. And are they saying that out loud? <laughs> no, but you can just tell with the looks right, that right. they're exchanging, like what is happening? Cause they're not prepared. And that's why, you know, the pop-up bra shows that are successful, they tend to have some sort of cue that conditions the audience that something is coming. So there's a great space um, in River North called The Drifter and they have just a little musical prelude that's about 30 seconds that. It's kind of this, and so people are like, oh, that's the music that tells me that a performance is about to come on. Within the burlesque community itself, there also seems to be a bit of debate regarding what exactly counts as burlesque and how the art form should be defined. So I'm super old school. To me, burlesque is like a parody. It means to make fun of, uh, to point out the hypocrisies of society and politics and the world around you. So that's what it is to me, but it's obviously different to everyone else. I think that while burlesque started at a very social commentary type of place, it's become such a larger thing. And Although, I mean, I would say that most burlesque does have the social commentary of just like body empowerment and like sex positivity and owning your body. There are some, it, it's totally valid for someone to step out on stage and be like, I'm a hot stripper. My act is about how hot of a stripper I am. And now I'm going to go be a hot stripper. And I'll stand up and clap for that because I love that shit. Like, you know what I mean? Burlesque, I think, is just kind of ridiculous. Like, I say that super lovingly because it's part of what I love about it, you know, but it's even 
pretty lady taking off her clothes, that's satire because no one is going at home and taking 10 minutes to peel a glove off delicately. You know, it's, it's, it's all kind of a joke. You know, it's like, I have a hard time taking myself seriously, like doing like a fully straightforward, pretty striptease thing. And the best burlesque performers that I know are the ones that are kind of constantly having a conversation with their audience where it's that give and take where you're giving permission. You're like, I'm going to take off my glove. I'm fine with this. You're fine with this. Let's enjoy this glove coming off. Having humor and kind of having that one-on-one connection with people in your audience means that, you know, if people have that knee-jerk reaction where they're like, sexuality is bad. I shouldn't be enjoying this or appreciating it. It makes people feel comfortable. It welcomes people in and it, and it becomes, it, it normalizes a lot of things. Joining Eva in that montage were the Reverend Spooky Lestrange, the most dangerous woman in burlesque. And Willie LeCue. Of all the people I spoke with for this episode, Spooky has been performing burlesque for the longest, almost 20 years at this point, And she doesn't exactly love the way she's seen the art form evolve. Yeah, I think it has become very uh, predictable. I think it's become very sanitized, very safe. Which is obviously the last thing the most dangerous woman in burlesque wants to see. Spooky's approach to performing has been confrontational and provocative from the very beginning. So the first burlesque routine I ever did was to NWA's Fuck the Police, uh, where I dressed as a cop and I would uh, handcuff either members of the audience or our Hispanic host, and I would pretend to beat the crap out of them. My first number was sort of social commentary on uh, police brutality before it was so much in the media. Dahlia Fatel, a burlesque and circus performer who, also, fun fact, works as a scientist, began her burlesque career about 10 years ago, and though she doesn't completely disagree with Spooky's critique, she does have a more positive outlook overall. It's definitely interesting, because there are things that have gotten better and there are things that have gotten worse, and it also depends on the city that you're in. Because let me tell you, New York burlesque performers, I've seen some things. I've seen ping pong balls come out of places. I watched um, Genesee Qua do an act that started as a classic striptease, and then she inserted a wee vibe and handed audience members her phone and oh. let them control it. Okay. Like a sex so, toy. Yes. Right. So, yeah. So, one that works with a phone. Correct. So, yeah, yeah. So, and just, the audience kind of got to fuck her in an interesting yep. way. Interaction with the audience. And so, like, I would say that's not sanitized. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the device was sanitized, but the actual, <laughs> I like, hope so. the actual experience was very raw and very interesting. And you get to see things like that in burlesque, which I absolutely love. And then at the same time, like, we've definitely come a long way from a weird period of time in, like, 2010, 2011, where everybody was wearing top hats and dancing to Coin Operated Boy. And I'm very happy to see that time have moved on on. (laughs) It was really good until I heard it 60,000 times. And now every other song on that album, I would much rather hear. (laughs) But it's, it's just evolved. And I wouldn't say that it's sanitized all the way around. There are definitely portions of it that have become sanitized. And there are also portions of it that have gotten more risque. I mean, we're also starting to see, to go back to drag, we're starting to see more hybridized performers there. I mean, you talk to Willie LeCue, you're starting to see more queer, weird nonsense coming out of these areas of art that didn't necessarily play together 10 years ago. I feel like you've, you're, you're a positive person. <laughs> you focus on the positive. Mm-hmm. What, what would, like, what 
10 years ago was there that maybe you feel has been lost. And maybe you've changed your mind that there's a negative. I don't know. There's, there's going to be a negative to every positive. Like that's the way the universe works. Um, I would say probably the negative to having more burlesque and having it become more popularized is that it's lost some of its unique counterculture feeling. Like if you were doing it 10 years ago when we'd show up at the show, like it felt like you were doing something new and innovative and you were breaking boundaries regardless of whether you still had tags on your underpants, cut your tags out of your underpants. At the time you didn't know that though. So you would just do it and it would have that feeling of like something groundbreaking. And you talk to people like over the weekend, I had the experience to talk to people who were doing it in the early to mid nineties when the revival recently had just started. And they'll tell you, they're like, what you people are doing now, like, this is not what we came here to do and we love it and we respect it, but it just has a different feeling to it. I spoke with Dahlia the day after she returned from a victorious trip to Las Vegas, where she was named best debut performer at the Burlesque Hall of Fame's 29th annual Tournament of Teas after dazzling the crowd with a sensual water act. How did you use water? Like, what was that? Because water is a very sexy thing. It is. I love water. Um, So in the dream world, what this act is actually going to become, and I'm very excited about it, I've started talking to some people in film about it, is we're going to make a video in a fountain, and I'm going to do the whole act in about an inch and a half of water because I just want that splash, Like, because that's what it feels like to me. But um, to present it on stage the way that it was most recently presented, I just took a bunch of sponges and I soaked them super hard. And so throughout the act, I would squeeze the sponges on myself. And my costume is a white um, or cream colored, rather, kind of a meshy material. So as I squeeze the sponges, the mesh clings tighter and tighter. And so that was a really fun kind of experimental way to do things. Um, It took a lot of testing. I stood in the shower for a really long time and was like squeezing sponges over myself because you don't want to like squeeze it wrong and have it like cling just to your butt or something weird like that. But it it was really fun. And it's a fun thing that I'm excited to do more with. It's, it's kind of like stripping in reverse by adding more. You show more at the same time. Exactly. Also, speaking of stripping in reverse. So um, there's an artist named Lori Hagen. I just saw her perform, but I've been obsessed with her for years. And she does this reverse strip that's to a reversed song. So she starts <laughs> nude and does the whole thing backwards, but the song is also backwards. It's you, you have to look it up. It's absolutely immaculate. You can find a link to that. Absolutely immaculate video in the show notes and at sexwithstrangersshow.com. Earlier, we heard Willie express his belief that burlesque doesn't necessarily need to incorporate elements of social commentary, but that doesn't change the fact that he loves getting political on stage. His favorite act, which he referred to as his queer as fuck mission statement, is a tribute to an openly gay jazz age entertainer from New York City named Gene Malin. He was just a gay guy in a tuxedo and he was goofy and he was confrontational and he was sexual and he would talk openly about being gay in the 20s on stage. And I thought that that was such a radical idea. And so I made an act. It was this three-part burlesque act, which is kind of a traditional styling of a burlesque act. You kind of have a beginning section, a middle section, and a final section. Section one was this part where I lip sync a song of his. Section two is this like very voguing style dance. And I wanted to kind of connect like contemporary queer movement with like with this old character. And then the last, the finale or the third section of the three-part act is 
this very, very slow burn, super sexual, very floor humpy, like I get super naked. And at the very, very end of it, I literally shove my hand down my pants and just kind of jerk off. (laughs) And like, I have this like masturbation moment. And then there's these like voices in the song and I kind of have an orgasm while I stare everybody in the eye. <laughs> I imagine you don't get so into it that it's a real orgasm. It's a simulated no. orgasm. <laughs> oh yeah. Very simulated. <laughs> yeah. No, I absolutely can't get hard on stage much to my own chagrin. Um, well, but... and, and wouldn't that <laughs> violate some sort of regulation? <laughs> Probably, but a lot of Chicago has seen my butthole. <laughs> so... That's just a great <laughs> sentence. <laughs> It's the truth. What's, what's your uh, claim to fame? A lot of Chicago has seen my butthole. A lot. Yeah. I <laughs> I I twerked in the Pride Parade in a jock strap one time and it showed up on Instagram and I learned my lesson. Well, then it's not just Chicago. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of people have seen my butthole. How um, do you feel about that? Well, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I like it. I don't mind it. But the whole idea behind that act was to be like, Gay men can be like the life of the party. They can be fun, goofy, and entertaining. But at the end of the day, like what connects queer people is that like we fuck each other and we are sexual beings and like sex is an intrinsic part of the community. And so that's like the message behind the act that people usually can pick up on. But so I kind of try to slip it in there. Right. And so like even if they're not going to get all of the references because you went deep with that. I went pretty deep with with that. You know, a lot of art is like that. There's there's just a lot of stuff buried in there that the average person isn't going to pick up on. Right. But maybe they'll be inspired by it nonetheless. Or they'll get get something out of it. And that is probably a key takeaway. Like no one's going to watch it and think, well, this person isn't sexual. (laughs) That's 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 true. Yeah. uh, That's a very (laughs) sexual butthole. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to episode 45 of Sex with Strangers, burlesque, boylesque, stripping, and competitive pole dancing. Oh my. As always, I'm your host, Chris Soa. This episode was a ton of fun to put together. Please stick around. Three quick things before we jump back into the show. One, I'm excited to say that Sex with Strangers is going to have its very first live event on Wednesday, November 6th at the Pleasure Chest, the main location on Lincoln Avenue here in Chicago. The featured guest will be Dr. Jen Gunter, a New York Times columnist who also wrote the book, The Vagina Bible. There'll be more details to come, but just mark that day on your calendar. The event will be at 8 p.m. Second, our effort to raise some money for the Planned Parenthood Action Fund will continue at least one more month. So if you write an Apple podcast review between now and the next show, we will give $5 to that very worthy cause. Third, I'm about to drive to New Mexico. I'm moving out of my apartment in a couple days and making my new home the open road over the course of the next year. I'm going to visit all 50 states and I want to meet listeners in all 50 states. We're going to have a separate announcement all about this, so I'm not going to get in too much detail. But the point is, 
if you're here in the US, I'm coming to your state sometime relatively soon, and we should collaborate. I'll be working on a new podcast, um, though I will continue to make this one. And honestly, it should come out just as often as it has been, if not more. I, I want it to come out more often. So there's no negative here, just a plus. There's going to be more content. I will be in Roswell, New Mexico from July 5th through the 7th for the Roswell UFO Festival. I will be interviewing people. And honestly, I could use a buddy to help me with that process and hang out and collaborate, which is the kind of thing I want to do in all 50 states. After that, about 10 days later, I'm going to be in Maine for the potato festival called Potato Days. So wherever you are, I will be there at some point. And the way to reach me at this moment is chris at sexwithstrangershow.com. And I promise there will be a more detailed announcement and much more information in the relatively near future. Returning to the topic at hand, you may have noticed that Willie was casually throwing around the word stripper earlier when talking about burlesque performers. That's very common within this world and came up in most of these conversations, including my chat with Porcelain Pistol, who dances on both burlesque and strip club stages. Some people really like don't like that strippers don't like when burlesque dancers call themselves strippers. Interesting. I wouldn't call her a burlesque dancer a sex worker, but I would call her a burlesque dancer a stripper. As a burlesque dancer, I strip more than I do as a stripper. You know, because you start off with so much more. Clothes. Exactly. Burlesque isn't like it's about being sexy, but it's not really there's there's not really an intimate exchange with a person one on one, you know, unlike with like at the strip club yeah. where their lap dances. Right. And burlesque is more like a theatrical type of thing. So that, that's where you draw the line in terms of what is and what isn't sex work. It's more like just like theater. Like if yeah, you were exactly. if you were in a sexy play, you wouldn't necessarily consider right. yourself a sex yeah. worker. Dahlia likes to frame burlesque as being sex work adjacent. I've heard this phrasing before. Um, it's definitely not something that I created, but it is something that I firmly believe. Um, I have a really strong network of friends who are sex workers um, from full service to strip club to pretty much everything in between. And they've taught me a lot about allyship and the work that they do. And burlesque is not sex work, but it is sex work adjacent in that we are showing our bodies and we are making people think about sex. And I feel like it's our responsibility as sex work adjacent humans to be allies to the sex work community and talk about things like stigmas and destigmatization and even um, decriminalization, things like that that are affecting sex workers and people who are adjacent to our industry. Um, we're more attached to that industry than say like a grocer or a scientist, but we are not in the trenches with them. And it's just more important that we listen to them than it is that we claim to be a part of that world. Do you think burlesque does a good, like the community does a good job of that? Do you feel like that allyship is strong or? It depends. Um, we're getting better. There have definitely been some areas and encounters with burlesque performers who will say things like, but we aren't strippers. We do classy stripping or whatever, or audience members who will say that to you. And that's a time to 
correct and pull aside and be like, it's, that's not what we're doing here. And you also need to look back at the history, like burlesque performers, once again, going back to legends and legacy started in strip clubs. Like they were the strippers. And then throughout time when full nude and the porn houses and things like that started to come up, the industry shifted and changed and it disappeared for a while. And this revival is no longer that, but that is where it started. And it's important to acknowledge that history and move forward with the art that we're creating now. Early burlesque performers are widely credited as being the original strippers. Then stripping evolved, moving into actual strip clubs and burlesque largely disappeared before reemerging in the early 90s. But the two worlds continue to intersect and influence each other. Lisa, the lone non-burlesque performer I spoke with for this show, took burlesque classes early into her stripping career in order to become a better stripper. And did it work? Do you feel like burlesque? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I'm always conscious about like pointing my toes and how I get up off the floor and, and just having like a little bit of like personality and character. Um, I think a lot of burlesque is it's the finite movements, the details, but it's also your face when you dance. And uh, that's one thing I noticed with like pole dancers a lot of the time, like there's no face because it's a lot of times more focused on the athletics, the difficulty, but like a burlesque dancer, like the way they move their eyebrows and the, the way they turn their face and the little quarter smile, all that kind of stuff. I use that. And it works like it, that's the cell is that like connection with that person, the audience member that's surveying who he's going to buy from. She's also a competitive pole dancer, so she sometimes likes to show off in strip clubs. But she made it clear to me that that's not the way you make real money as a stripper. Most of the money that you're you're making when you hear about those three grand nights, that's lap dances and champagne yeah. rooms. Yeah. But it still feels nice. I mean, the most exhilarating moment is when someone makes it rain on you because they're appreciating your your pole style, your tricks. I mean, I, I think so. I work hard for it. So when someone throws money on me, it feels awesome. You feel it's like doing a ton of cocaine. Like you feel amazing. That's a fun analogy. Yeah. I mean, I don't do blow. No judgment to anybody that does, but. Right, right, right. The feeling that, they, that people talk about when they do it, I'm like, yeah, I know what that feels like. Like, that's my drug. And she's been taking that drug for about a decade now. Ten years later, is is the job still fun? It is, but it's definitely more serious because I am I am dependent. My income is dependent on it um, versus, well, in the beginning, my income was. I just was in denial about it. So I treated it like it was fun, and that really screwed me up because I didn't look at it as a job for a long time. But it's still fun. I just find... Uh, I find it fun in other ways. In the beginning, it was like, oh, I wonder if some guy will like me tonight. Uh, <laughs> and now it's like, of course he's going to like me. But um, the fun part for me now is like setting up challenges for myself, goals. Like, can I make this much tonight? Like, how am I going to make that? How many rooms do I need to sell tonight to get to this? So like, for me, it's more of like a financial game. Part of my prep for this episode was listening to a podcast called Burlesque Stripped Down. That's no longer in production, but is still out there and easy to find. In one episode, the host, Velvet Eau Claire, asserts that one of the major differences between burlesque and club stripping has to do with power dynamics. She said that since burlesque performers are generally paid before a gig, when they hit the stage, they do so as the most powerful people or person in the room. Club strippers, on the other hand, according to Eau Claire, are dancing for the money and attention of the men in the room 
And therefore, the real power in a strip club is held by the men in the audience. So I ran this hypothesis by the women featured in this episode who have spent time dancing in both of these worlds. I disagree. Yeah, I disagree with that. Um, Because in a club, uh, you still have the power to say no, Um, to say, get your hands off me, to say, I don't know. That's I don't do that. Don't touch me. And there's usually someone there to enforce those rules, too. Um, So there's usually a security at the strip club. Um, So you do have the power to say no. In most places, the power lies with the performer and not with the customer, no matter how much money they have. I always tell people like I'm I'm not a stripper because I take my clothes off. I'm a stripper because I strip money out of men's wallets like that's my job. So in that way, yes, like you're you're getting someone to give you a lot of money and all they're getting from it is an experience. They don't get to go home with like some product or something. It's like I lost $500, but I have this memory of being with this woman for an hour and this woman that pretended to be who I wanted her to be, like, that's pretty powerful that, like, I can get men to give me their paycheck for that fantasy. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's that's how I see it. Like, I can see both sides where, um, I mean, one of the things, and I'm just going to call her porcelain because mm-hmm. that's how we call her, yeah. <laughs> you know, on, on this show. I mean, one of the things she was saying is, you know, it can vary night from night. Like, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's a really slow night, then she feels less powerful because Absolutely. it's just like... But when it's like pouring money, then that's a very powerful feeling. Cocaine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah. yeah. And because um, I just think of the experience I had where, you know, it was a bachelor party. We went to this like really high end strip club. I remember we were all talking beforehand, like how much we're going to spend, all that sort of stuff. And that all went out the window. Yeah. The group was reduced to just like drooling idiots. <laughs> and I just saw a lot of power in that yeah. and sort of like, they've been hustled. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it was completely consensual. Yeah. Um, even if there's a little bit of regret from at least some of them afterwards where they're thinking <laughs> about explaining it to their wives. Like, <laughs> Why they took $500 out of the ATM, you know, that kind of thing. just treat their friends to a really nice steak dinner. That's all that happens. (laughs) Like my club, when someone pays a credit card, it comes up as like Chicago food and beverage. I think they could have picked something a little bit better than that, but at least, you know, it looks like a nice dinner. That doesn't strike me as suspicious, but I don't know. I've never been a wife examining a credit (laughs) card bill for something suspicious, you know? Yeah, I mean, if that's the problem... I don't think it has anything to do with the strip club economics. I think it has more to do with their relationship and why she has an issue with him going and being entertained. But it could just be like spending that money yeah. too. Like if you're, if you're on a tight budget right, yeah. and you learn that someone, you know, your husband spent $500 on entertainment, yeah. you know, even if it's a clown show, you know what I yeah. mean? Like Feed your family first. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But I'm sure, you know, in the club, you deal with that a little bit where there are guys there spending money they should not be. Um, yeah. and sorry, it's, not sorry. Right. And is it is it obvious sometimes where it's just like, yeah. it doesn't seem like you should be. I try to be ethical about it. Like if someone, if someone is just really wasted and making poor life choices, like, I try to be ethical, but at the same time, it's like you're saying, like they're, they're paying to get hustled. Uh, I, I think there's a psychological element to that. A lot of guys 
have high pressure jobs and they come in and they just for an hour want someone to take the control away. And that's what they're paying for. I get it. Like I pay my therapist like 150 bucks an hour. So that's what I do to take the control away. I think that's what they're trying to do a lot. of. So in that way, it's almost like financial domination. Yeah. Yeah. Just sort of like up close and personal. Yeah. But yeah, just not as direct, (laughs) you know, like they are being financially dominated, but I'm just pretending like I'm not doing it. And I don't know how I ended up here. Yeah. Spooky no longer works in strip clubs, but both Lisa and Porcelain currently dance in clubs with house fees they have to pay in order to work. So they start out each shift in the hole financially and could actually lose money on a super shitty night. So they both mentioned that as a reason they sometimes feel less than powerful at work. But they both also seem to generally do pretty well for themselves. Stripping has also helped Porcelain see some of the power she has as a woman outside of the strip club. I feel a lot less inclined to put up with bullshit if I'm not being paid. So so it's affected the way you value myself and my time and my emotional energy. And probably the, the power dynamics within dating sort of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's empowered you to just be more assertive, it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. Which I think would surprise some people who are critical of the adult entertainment industry, mm-hmm. you know, who, who have this idea that you're degrading yourself and that it would, it would harm your self-esteem and it would harm your personal life. And, but that has not been your experience, it sounds like. It, it obviously it can be a, a draining job at times and sometimes it can wear on you, but there's also been a lot of positives that have come from it. Has it put stress on any of your sort of like personal relationships? No, I don't think so. Is burlesque draining at all? Only when I'm working on a new act and I'm spending hours and hours making a costume. I think... No, like I think if I'm, you know, working and performing and I'm having a very busy schedule, the combination is draining. But I think burlesque is what makes me, you know, kind of gives me more fuel back because it's exciting and it just makes me like remember, you know, because if you're like on your way to a show and you're super busy and you're just like, oh, I really wish I could just have tonight off. And then you get off stage and you're like, you Oh, I remember why I wanted to do this. (laughs) Performing can just be so exhilarating. Mm -hmm. Even if you're going into it kind of not necessarily feeling like going on stage. Yeah. Like I've had some of my my best performances when I didn't want to do it at all. And then it ends up being exactly what I needed because like my mood is completely changed. It's not difficult to imagine a variety of reasons why stripping could be draining at times. And one of those reasons is that it's work. Our culture loves to devalue everything under the umbrella of sex work. But I assure you, these are real jobs. I do homework before I come to work so that I can have a good shift. I study what's going on in sports. Who's winning? Who's playing who? Is it a home game, away game? What events, what conventions are going on? Um... Is it raining that day? How many girls worked the night before? I'll ask the bouncers. Oh, because likely a few less girls will show all that kind of stuff. 
when learning about like the sports kind of stuff is is that so you can sort of have smart conversations yep. with them and yes. that kind of thing the the ball thing that goes over there yeah i know something about that i don't i hate sports i mean i like basketball basketball is cool because that's fun to watch but i i don't sport so <laughs> I'm like, i don't understand football but i have to pretend like i do that's cool that you do that how common do you think that is very well i think a good stripper is going to invest some knowledge into at least one sport you should know about all of them but um you have to pay attention to what the stuff that men like men like sports and boats and finance and i don't know <laughs> I, I imagine the ones that are like the easy money like yeah. finance quite a bit oh yeah <laughs> so. well sometimes they're really tight with their money but um the ones, my favorite guy is the guy that's been working in fi- finance major that got his first job. And he's making crazy money. Yeah. At least he, he feels like yeah, he is. Yeah, he got that first promotion, that huge one. And now he's like, I'm going to go nuts. And they always come into the club at like two in the morning, a little hammered and with like one or two friends that end up disappearing after 20 minutes. They're by themselves. I asked that guy right away for a room and he's like, yes, let's go. And then it, he always wants me to hit him. Like... That guy, because they have all this power. This young kid got this job. He's making like six figures, doesn't know what to do with his money. He's got all the stress because it is a stressful job handling all that money. And he just wants someone to take the power away from him for like an hour. And it's great. Like, those are my favorite guys. The way you're describing this, it sort of sounds like the strip club has become the dungeon for guys who are afraid (laughs) to go to the dungeon. You know, it's just sort of like a step before like actually getting someone who is there to hit you to hit you or just like, you know, when people want strippers to pee on them, that's again, you know, (laughs) domination. And, you know, I think that's like an evolution that's happened in my life. Um, So you don't feel that it was like that when you 10 years ago? No, no, because I was very passive and I was very sweet. Like that was my character back then. But now that I'm like a seasoned old hag, like, (laughs) you know, now I get these, it's, it's funny. Like I remember the day when I noticed that So you think that these guys were always there, but yeah, I wasn't. Now you're drawing them because you you were more like maybe girl next door, yes, and now you're more like the badass next door. I hope so. Um, I was like definitely well, I was younger, so I was a girl next door that all the really old guys liked, and now I'm the old milf stripper that like all the young guys really like. So like my my clientele has completely changed, but I can still finesse the older guys. There's just not that many of them left because they're dead now. So. Like the old, old guys, you know, those are the best. They, they're always angels. They come and float in. And they're just like, here, I just want to pay you $500 to sit and talk with me. Can I massage you a little? Sure. But yeah. you get less of that now. Less of that. Now I get the guys that want me to step on them. And do you do that like in the club, like in the private rooms kind of stuff? I do. I, I've i never had an issue with it. Like I had this guy once. It was so funny. Like I had just gotten off stage or something and I was walking to the bathroom and this guy grabs me and goes, hey. Can, can I take you the champagne room? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Thank you for just handing me this money. So we go up there and I start to give him a dance and he's like, he's like, I'm a piece of shit. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, just, just, just hit me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then he's like, and then he gets on the floor. And he's like, I'm worthless. And then he grabs my foot and he like pushes it into his chest. And I'm like, oh, you're one of those guys. So then, you know, like I take my shoes off and I'm like stepping on him and hitting, kicking him in the face and just like beating his ass for an hour. And the bouncer walks by and he like does a double take and he looks at me and he's like, are, 
are you okay with this? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> is this a security issue? Yeah. He's, and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I don't know. This is great. He's like, gives me a thumbs up and then walks away. And then like at the end of that, that guy <laughs> like stands up and then takes his watch off and throws it at me and then runs away. <laughs> like, <laughs> was it a valuable watch? No, I think it was like 800 new. So I could probably pawn it for like 50 bucks or something. I think I still have it. Like I just I haven't made it to the pawn shop yet. Well, it seems like a fun trophy, you yeah. know, remembering that moment. Yeah. yeah. So apparently like people, uh, guys that like feet like me, I have high arches. I guess that's a thing. There are a lot of guys who, yeah. who are very into feet. That's a very lucrative thing uh-huh. to have if, if you if you have the it feet. Yeah. Yeah. If you like feet, send me a message. So <laughs> <laughs> her arches are the best mm, in town. Best arches in town. That's interesting. I wonder um, maybe it's because in the past I haven't talked to strippers who sort of fill this role in the ecosystem mm. or maybe our conversations just didn't get to this point where we were talking about sort of guys wanting basically BDSM services. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, because like, at work, I don't look like the type of stripper that would provide that. I, I have a very classic stripper look. Like I You're not in leather. No, but it's funny. Like the girls that have that aesthetic are never into that kind of stuff. It's like things are never what they seem. So like I wear my chrome shoes and I'll wear like a mini dress or maybe some lingerie. And like I attract all these like weird guys. I had an armpit guy once. <laughs> He's just like, he starts asking me if I worked out today. And I'm like, yeah. And then he's like, did you just work out? Or he's like, yeah, you're really sweaty. Did you just work out? I'm like, no. He's like, did you wear deodorant today? I'm like, oh my God, you're an armpit guy. So, yeah. But you just roll with it, I assume. Because the the fetishists are going to spend. They shouldn't be shamed for that. Right. That they're looking for that. And like, if they're too shy to go try to find a provider or go to a dungeon because that's intimidating, maybe I don't know that dungeons are real, they're going to go to, like, the most obvious place, like a strip club. Right. It is a less intimidating space. Yeah. And if maybe you just give out this sort of very kind of open-minded, quirky vibe. Like, that could just yeah. be what it is. It's just like, you know, she seems like she's not going to laugh at me. There are some people in strip clubs where they seem very unapproachable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just sort of like admire from a distance. Mm-hmm. And maybe you just don't put off that sort of like, almost like fuck you energy, you know, that some people yeah, put off. And I don't thing. think they necessarily mean to because I don't think that's great for business yeah. to have people afraid of you. But I, <laughs> but I think some some guys also get off on the idea of sort of penetrating that mm-hmm. kind of dome of untouchability oh, yeah. mm-hmm. that some people project. So they can like flip it on her and get her to chase him. I mean, right. that's the ultimate fantasy because men are always the ones doing the approaching in the real world. But in the strip club, we approach them. That's what they're paying for. So yeah, if he can get that like resting bitch face <laughs> to come and approach him, then that's that's the power trip. He's won. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it seems like maybe in, in a strip club, it's one of those dynamics where everyone can kind of feel powerful mm-hmm. for, for different reasons and be right at the same time. It's yes. like you are powerful by just having the money, yeah. but you feel powerful taking the money 
And I feel powerful having given you the money to do what I want you to do. Yes. So what you're talking about. It sounds like utopia. It's called consensual sex work. Yeah. (laughs) And that's where everybody wins. I get paid. I give you a service that you really want that you can't get anywhere else. And everyone goes home happy. That's how it should be. Amen. One thing that comes up repeatedly in the burlesque stripped down podcast is the idea that the burlesque world has become super competitive and oversaturated. That's not something most of the dancers I spoke with for this show seem to believe. So it might simply be a regional thing. Everyone featured in this episode, with one exception, is based in Chicago. Spooky is said exception and lives in New Orleans. But Lisa did mention her belief that super competitive and oversaturated is an apt way of describing the current vibe at Chicago strip clubs. And sometimes it's very cutthroat. The wintertime is the worst time to dance in Chicago. I hate it. Like, I'm trying to get out this winter. But yeah, I mean, you're always competing. Like, on a Saturday night, a couple of Saturdays ago, we had 75 girls on the floor. My club isn't that big. And there wasn't a lot of customers. Like, it wasn't like a jam-packed house. So, yeah, you're competing. Some girls go home in the negative. Some girls go home with, like, three, four grand. It's and not equal. I'm, I'm sure there are horror stories of people dancing under circumstances where they don't really want to dance. And, mm-hmm. you know, because the part of the trafficking na- narrative connects to the strip club. But when I think about a situation where you have that many people competing for the limited attention of a small club, it sort of, I think, puts it into perspective that it's just like, yeah, there are more people who want to do this than there's money to be made. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The supply of dancers is much higher than the demand. And the the clubs make money off of the house fees that we pay. So if 75 girls want to work that night, please come to work. We're making money off of you. They don't care that only 25% of those girls are going to get paid that night if it's slow. Ever the consummate hustler, Lisa has started making money off of her competition by coaching less experienced dancers for 150 bucks an hour. Seasoned burlesque performers, like artists of all stripes, also often teach classes and workshops about their craft to make ends meet. In fact, three of the performers I spoke with for this episode teach classes at the Chicago Academy of Burlesque which is co-run by Willie LeCue, whom I'm sure you remember from earlier. A lot of Chicago has seen my butthole. Everyone I spoke with for this episode agreed that burlesque audiences are typically mostly made up of women, which is the opposite of your standard strip club. But unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily mean audience members are more likely to be respectful of burlesque performers' personal space or boundaries. How handsy are these audiences? How? Let's talk about that. Um, It's always drunk, straight women. I've never been touched by a man in a way that I felt uncomfortable with. Because I don't get very uncomfortable when men touch me. I was going to say, does that have more to do with sort of how you feel about men touching you versus how you feel about women touching you? No, I think, I I mean, like, obviously this is, it, it hugely is determined by my gender, right? And how I present myself. Women get their asses squeezed in the club a lot more than I do. 
I do not experience it as much as other people, but I think other people feel an ownership over women's bodies more than they feel over mine. But I, Justin Louisville, God, what was this? In January, um, a lady well, came up Those Kentucky to me. women. Are- those Kentucky women. No, I was in Louisville in January, and this lady just goes, I'm going to touch your pecker, and then just squeezed my dick and ran away. And it's like, I'm going to touch your pecker. It was the craziest line and it just happened. And then she ran out the door and like, I didn't even have a chance to like say, get the fuck out. <laughs> she did it like, oh, like she's like a purse snatching kind of thing. It's a just little like, bit. And, and it was gone. a little boop right on the tip. <laughs> it didn't hurt. There were a lot of rhinestones blocking it, but like, how did you feel about that? It, it's fucking weird. And it just like, it, it really, I would never do that to a person. I would never squeeze a dude's dick without asking him if it was okay first. And so it really kind of took me out of the experience. It kind of like, it kind of brings you out of the character a little bit. And then all of a sudden you're a lot more aware of your body in the space and how naked you really truly are. It takes a lot of the fun out of it, to be honest. I have a theory about this, and my theory about this comes back to strip club culture, which is that men are taught to watch. Like, men from a relatively young age, whenever they're, like, starting to be sexualized, are taught that when you go to the strip club, you put your hands at your sides and you observe. Women are not taught this behavior, stereotypically, in um, our society. So when they have the opportunity, and I've seen this happen with both male and female performers and performers who are non-binary, you'll have, um, you know, hands come out and try to grab, especially men's genitals, um, or women will come up and grab my breasts and then say, it's okay, I'm a girl. And I'm like, that's super not actually okay. Um, Actually, it makes it no, we don't, we're not here to do that. And that, and that's not a unique experience. Like I feel like, especially with crowd work and things like that, I've gotten another line from other performers, which is that when people grab your butt, I tend to turn around and yell, ask first (laughs) because then I've taught them consent and they won't do it again, or they'll ask. And then depending on how I'm feeling, I'll either say yes or no, but we've kind of become like in those situations, we have to teach people about consent, whether we want to or not, they need to learn like, no, you don't just grab someone's genitals. You ask them first and maybe they'll say yes, but they're probably going to say no, especially if they're willy like you in Kentucky and somebody's trying to grab them. Right. <laughs> Obviously there, I'm sure over your 10 years, you've seen some misbehaving men as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, it's just the, the, the socialization is different about sort of how we consume erotic up close entertainment. Yeah. No, people of all genders can be really, really inappropriate. Like this is not something that's unique to males, females, non-binary humans, anybody else. It is just something that occurs, but it's always, people always seem to be surprised when they find out that it was women. Um, whereas like in my experience, it's more often women than men. Although when it's men, it tends to be more vulgar, which is also just kind of an interesting thing to observe. Spooky echoed this idea that incidents with women at burlesque shows are more frequent, but that the men who act out often do so in more extreme ways. This came up in the context of comparing working in strip clubs to performing burlesque. In her experience, strip club security tends to be much more reliable than that provided at burlesque shows, where at least in Spooky's experience, Sometimes you have to take matters into your own hands. There was one time uh, when I uh, was doing a burlesque show with some bands 
And during one of the girls' routines, this guy who was working for one of the other bands, I guess, started to uh, take his clothes off. And uh, he was naked in the audience and he started to jerk off. So I, uh, security wasn't, uh, there wasn't hardly any security. So nobody was doing anything about it. So I actually went into my burlesque bag and pulled out a pair of sewing scissors and I went up to the dude and I held, I grabbed him by the back of the neck and I held the scissors uh, up to his junk and I dragged him out of the club with uh, a pair of sewing scissors next to his his penis and I threw him out myself because I was I was really upset. I felt like he was disrespecting the girl on the stage and uh, I don't care how drunk you are. There was no excuse for that. That would have never happened in a strip club like he would have been out of there in seconds. But because it was a club like a club that had bands, they either didn't realize or didn't care. But I had to take care of that myself. And I did. You are not someone to fuck with. Like, I've I've known that before this conversation, but it's just, it's really reinforced it. <laughs> I hope you get a lot out of this episode, but if there's one key takeaway, it's don't fuck with the Reverend Spooky Lestrange, or you might find out for yourself why she's the most dangerous woman in burlesque. Porcelain has encountered badly behaved patrons in both burlesque shows and at strip clubs. And she made it clear that even clubs with tight security attract some pushy, inappropriate assholes. In your experience, how common is sort of the the behaviors you don't like or that are not supposed to happen? I mean, one thing is going to happen, at least a shift. And by by one thing, like what, what do you mean? Maybe something... It's like I, I have like a ranking in my head, too. And <laughs> what's like worse Maybe having a guy pull their dick out during a lap dance, that's like, that's like a maybe once every three month occurrence for me personally. Uh, and when that happens, what happens? Like, what what do you do? What What are the consequences for that kind of thing? Well, you go get the security guard and they'll hopefully, if you're working in a good club, kick them out. But I've heard from other clubs that guys can get away with stuff and stay. Some, cl- it, some clubs don't value the dancers as much as they value the bar tab that's racking up. In your experience dancing, do you feel like that's most clubs, that's a minority of clubs? I haven't worked at all that many clubs, so I don't really have a good gauge of that yet. But I have heard from other dancers who work at other clubs, and it seems like there's a pretty good mix of good and bad. Your experience overall, good or bad? The security at my club is pretty good. Like a lot of performers who straddle these two worlds, Porcelain sees the strip club as the place she goes to pay her bills and the burlesque stage as a place where she can express herself and empower others. When I'm performing for an audience of women in a burlesque show, I feel like I'm empowering them through my performance because they might be looking saying, oh my gosh, she has so much confidence. I could never do that. I wish I could do that. And that's what got me into burlesque in the first place was seeing that. I find it incredibly empowering to, especially when specifically women come up to me after a show and are just like, 
oh my God, you were amazing. You really inspired me. Like, I feel like, you know, I could, I could do, maybe do this. Um, not necessarily on stage, but I feel more confident after seeing you. Inspiring other people is is incredibly empowering. Um, and that's probably one of my favorite things about burlesque. A lot of burlesque performers begin their journeys into this world largely because they randomly happened to attend a burlesque show one time and got inspired to perform. Burlesque slash boylesque performer Ben D. Mann attended his first burlesque show and had that typical experience we've all had once or twice where a dominatrix dressed like a horse commands you to start pursuing burlesque as a career. My friend was like, come to this show. I'm going to introduce you to this person. And I didn't know, um, you know, kind of what to expect. I was like fresh off the boat, you know, just walking into Chicago. And we went to this performance at like a nightclub. And there was this performer, this female burlesque performer that was amazing. And I remember uh, she <laughs> did an act that was, she was wearing all leather and she basically was like a, a leather dominatrix horse. She had like a horse head and blinders like a horse would wear on. And she had a riding crop. She whipped herself with the riding crop. She whipped the audience with the riding crop. And she counted in her heels like a horse. And it was like just so fun and, and amazing. And um, so he introduced me to her. He was a friend of hers. And she took one look at me and was like, oh, you're doing this. She also probably was in full dominatrix mode because she legit was a dominatrix. She was a burlesque performer and a dominatrix. And, you know, she did like so 15 she, she different things. She found a way to combine them. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. She probably was just in that mode. She was having fun at the gig. And she literally kind of like, you know, just leaned in and was like, you're doing this. And she didn't know me from Adam and I didn't know her from Adam. But my friend was like, oh, yeah, no, he'd be really great because he's a dancer. And she was like, yeah, you're totally doing this. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And so, you know, we kind of just had normal banter. And then we left. And literally, like, two days later, she had apparently gotten my information from him, given it to someone that manages and produces shows. They had contacted me and asked me to do something. And um, they were throwing me into a show at the last minute. And they literally said, I won't name any names because people will figure out who these people are. Um, but they said, we want you in this show because we have one guy that performs, but we don't like him very much. <laughs> and they were like, he's he's decent, but he's like really not fun to work with behind the scenes and we want to replace him. But anyway, it was just funny because they were like, we totally want you to like kick this guy out. And I was like, I don't know any of these people. And I'm like already like involved in stuff. You're already starting right. with so much drama. I know. And so anyway, they were like, we're going to put you in. And I was like, I don't know. And then then I found out that. So first of all, the theme of the show was uh, Michael Jackson, which I was like, awesome. But all the other songs were normally taken, except I asked specifically about Scream because I was like, I love Scream, like Michael and Janet together. And I was a huge Janet fan. And then um, I found out that the so the bar and the venue was a like basically like a lesbian biker bar. And I was like uh i'm a dude you know and so i'm i'm talking to the it's a, a female producer and i'm like are you sure that there's gonna be interest in me stripping in a lesbian like biker bar and they were like oh no they're gonna love you and i was like are you really sure because i don't know and so they they assured me it was gonna be fine and i was gonna be a big hit so what was your costume oh i wore you know i 
I remember pieces of it, but I don't remember all of it. I know I was wearing, I know I stripped down to a leather thong. And that was basically it. Like I kind of wore like a rock star vibe sort of. It was just like normal clothes. You know what I mean? Because I didn't really know what I was doing. Would and you... I danced with the chair. And so I was nervous because I didn't want to like uh, just rely on the bar chair because I didn't know exactly what the chair was going to be like. And I wanted to do some actual like tricks. So I asked, I remember at the time I asked my friend to borrow his, what's literally his kitchen chair. Um, and I was like, it's fine. I won't do anything to it. I just want to make sure that I can like, you know, it's sturdy and I know it and I'll bring it to the gig and I'll bring it back. Well, somehow on stage, I got so excited performing and I don't know how still to this day this happened, but it's like an epic start to my career. Somehow I full on Incredible Hulk ripped this chair in half on stage because I got carried away with myself and I got so into it. Don't ask me how. I don't know how. But I felt as a performer, the chair start to like give or like, you know, break. And then I just broke it like on purpose because I was like, Rah, you know, yeah. and I was living my life and everyone freaked out and thought it was 100% on purpose. It was not at all. It was totally a weird thing that happened that I just figured out how to make work for me. And this was a borrowed chair. And this was, yes, this was a borrowed <laughs> chair that was not my chair that I utterly destroyed. And it was literally in splinters. And they were having a raffle that night and trying to raise money for something. And so what I remember is the producer came up to me afterwards and was like, you did great. That was awesome. Everyone loves you. Well, first of all, the lesbians screamed that they wanted my D at the bar, which which was shocking and surprising. But I was like, hey, you're right. They like me. And then they were like, uh, people like you so much that we are wondering if you're comfortable with signing some of the broken pieces of the chair and because they were rubbed on your body and then we would like to sell them to people as part of the raffle to make money. Are you comfortable with this? And I was like, yeah. So then I signed pieces of the chair with the Sharpie and they auctioned off pieces of my chair that I broke that I had to replace because it was my friend's. And so, yeah, so then it was it was like on and my my friend that had sort of forced me into the gig literally like shoved me on stage and was like, you're doing this. That was a dominatrix was there. And was like, yeah, no, you're good at this. You're going to keep going. <laughs> so I started out doing a couple of numbers for her, like just backup for her or choreographing for her. And then I kind of went from there as a solo performer. But it was totally a weird, wild foot in the door way to get involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... At a lesbian dive bar. <laughs> and I mean, one of the things Willie was saying is that he feels that he does benefit from when he, when he does a show when he's the only male. It sort of it's attention grabbing that suddenly now there's a, a man in the space yeah especially if you're in a performance with you know other all-female burlesquers but i would say a similar thing also happens when you're in like a drag show and you're like the only not drag thing that's happening um or you know like drag adjacent thing that's happening because all those lines get kind of blurred for us performers sometimes but i definitely benefited especially at the beginning of my career because I performed in a way that was a little more effeminate. And at the time that I was coming up, there were male burlesque performers and they were around, but a lot of what they were being asked to do was very like bachelorette party, um, Magic Mike, Chippendale stuff. And they could sort of experiment a little bit with that and kind of step outside of that. But a lot of times it was you had to kind of be in that mode and present yourself that way all the time. And that was the expectation. And I really never fit that expectation from day one. 
Like, you know, I might have broken the chair like the Incredible Hulk, but I was also sissing my walk immediately afterwards, you know what I mean? And so it took me a second to sort of find my groove, but then when I did, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and I wasn't getting booked in a lot of the burlesque shows that I was really wanting to at first. And so it was a lot of my drag friends and and my queens that really sort of were like, well, we're going to put you in our show. And I really got noticed and got a start and got a following because I got put in so many of those shows. And I was the one thing that was different, which definitely helped. One way performers of all genders stand out is by incorporating other disciplines into their burlesque. Like when Dahlia uses her contortion skills to smoke a cigarette with her foot on stage. I have a foot smoking act that I do to FKA Twigs two weeks. And that's like my long-term favorite act just because it's, it just feels really good. Like it feels really sexy and it's really silly and people love foot smoking. So I enjoy that. And, and maybe this isn't the audience really at the burlesque shows, but I just think about like two huge fetishes, you mm-hmm. know feet and smoking and you're you're combining them oh yeah no it, it's pervasive in all of the shows you definitely get a couple people who are like <gasps> and you're like oh I know what's going on in your head and I just get a little bit like a little kick out of that it makes me real happy you enjoy that there will be sort of the audience members where it's almost like you have this like secret connection with where it's just like this is really scratching an itch mm-hmm. oh yeah no i If you've not made an audience member think something, then I feel like you haven't done your job properly. And for me, with the kind of acts that I create, I like to think that I've turned on some of the audience members and that maybe they have to now resolve why that happened. Like maybe you didn't know that you had a foot fetish and a smoking fetish, but surprise, now you do. Or maybe you didn't know that this was something that you were into or intrigued by. And even if it's not like explicitly sexual, it's something that's intrigued you in a way that you've never been intrigued before. And I love that feeling. Has a burlesque performer ever had that effect on you? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I love watching burlesque, and I I have an exhibitionism thing. So, like, watching other people do that is really, I find it very enlightening and very invigorating. I love watching burlesque performers. Contortion is associated with the circus, so this is actually the third episode in a row now where the circus has come up in a sexy context. How sexy is the circus as someone who's like, is, is, am I getting the right indication that like the circus is like a super, a super like sexually charged world where um, (laughs) that's not your experience with the circus. A circus is sexy in that we are humans who get to know our bodies and we do beautiful art with our bodies and like all of that is very sexual. However, so much of circus is sitting on the ground, eating a sandwich and throwing things because you can't get the position right or knowing that you haven't showered in four days, but you're going to the circus gym anyway. Like it's not a sexy world to be in when you're training. It's sexy when you're performing it, or it can be. And it also depends on how you define sexy. Like, I know you talk to Ken and Sonny, and clowns, man, like, that's their jam. So they'll they'll find the clown very sexy. But not everybody has that experience. Um, I wouldn't say that circus is inherently sexy. I will say that the circus is inherently sexualized because it is bodies moving in unique and different ways. Do you have, like, a sexual connection to the circus, or is it just about the athleticism and the tricks and fun and stuff? That's a hard question. Um, 
I would say that I do have somewhat of a sexual connection to the circus because I enjoy burlesque circus hybridization and I, you have to have a sexual connection to your burlesque work. And so I definitely do find the movement of the body is a very sexual thing. And I like to make positions that may be suggestive or find ways to position my body that other people might find sexual. So I would say in that way, I do have a sexual connection to the circus. And were you always as comfortable with your body and with your sexuality and sort of turning it into art? Oh, no. <laughs> Lord, no. Um, I grew up in a tiny podunk mountain town, and I grew up very Catholic, and I was very reserved. My very first burlesque act, I did not take off my bra. Um, I, As I said earlier, I grew up dancing, so I definitely had like all of the body dysmorphia that comes with being a teenage dancer. And it's it's a long journey and it definitely continues. Like there are days when I'm super excited to show off my body and I'm like, today is the day I want to burlesque. And there are days when you're backstage and you're like, all I want is a slice of pizza and a nap and I don't want anybody to look at my body. Like there's definitely that awareness and it changes for everybody all the time. But we have to remember that the outside eye is not the inside eye and that all bodies are so beautiful and so interesting and to look at them that way as opposed to having the, well, this is an imperfection or this looks funny today is kind of a different story. And that body positivity is a huge part of burlesque culture. Just about everyone told me burlesque has helped them become less critical and judgmental of their own bodies as well as the bodies of others, focusing on what they find beautiful instead of searching for imperfections. The Ken and Sonny she referenced there are, of course, Ken Melvoinberg and Sonny Megatron from American Sex Podcast and other cool things. And you can hear them talk about clown fetish and clown fucking in episode 38 of this very show. Like a lot of performers, Dahlia also takes gigs at private parties and corporate events. So typically when people want corporate burlesque, what they actually want is pretty girls with fans or headdresses or something in that vein. Um, if you, when you talk to Eva Lafiva, she will tell you so many stories about like, we want burlesque at this event when what they really want is just like a costume showgirl. Or you're like, how naked can I get? And they're like, naked? What do you mean? Why would you take off your clothes? And it's like, well, you requested a burlesque performer. Um, so there's definitely... And this is where we get into like burlesque being an HR field. Like there's a whole lot of negotiating when you come into a client relationship where they're like, I want to have this. And you have to be like, okay, so how much of this do you actually want? Do you understand what you're asking me for? And usually they don't. And you can just kind of guide them in the right way and figure out what that is. But I'm rarely as salacious in corporate events as I am on stage. Because those events are less about artistic or sexual expression and more about getting paid. Her weirdest gig was doing contortion in a megachurch. Willie's strangest private gig was the exact opposite of megachurch contortion. He played Beetlejuice at a swingers party. Like they really wanted only hot people. <laughs> so it was a lot of like young, hot people giving fake names. And like, so, so it was sort of like a, a young hip swinger type of thing. And that's why younger, you had the male burlesque yeah. performer there. Just yeah, to right. sort of show how cool we are. Yeah. Overall, Willie had fun, but not as much fun as he wanted to have. So I was thinking that maybe at least some of these guys would be kind of bi-curious. 
And so I was going in and out of the bathroom trying to see if anybody wanted to get a little Beetlejuice, but nobody was trying to have sex with me. Because not only was I, am I like very obviously gay, but I was like in, I had like moss glued to my face. Like, I mean, right. I'm sure someone's into it, but they probably but weren't like, at that event. What do I say to these heterosexuals to get them excited to fuck each other? I don't know what I'm doing at this point. Was that your job? Yes. I feel like that's, that should be unnecessary at a swingers event I was, to sort of egg them on. You're like the, the sex cheerleader. Yeah. No, that's exactly. I was hired to be the sex cheerleader and Beetlejuice. <laughs> and how did, what grade would you give yourself for fill, fulfilling that role? A solid C minus. <laughs> well, did they fuck? <laughs> they did fuck. Your job was done. And I just sat on a couch and watched it in makeup. I was like, I know you that giving some like guy. color commentary for, for the fucking? I was so caught off guard at just the situation I had found myself in that I had no words. I, I, I did not, none of my theatrical training prepared me for the moment to where like this woman is like aggressively being eaten out. And I am in a wig, <laughs> like staring. <laughs> like I don't remember any lines from the movie at that point. <laughs> it's like, showtime! Like what do I do? <laughs> I feel like that's the perfect reaction. <laughs> I did get to do a little a little strip tease, and like since it was a sex party, I was allowed to be naked. So that was kind of fun and interesting. So did you get fully nude for that? I had. I went down to a sheer. Okay. Underwear thing. So it was like very close. Very close. But it's yeah. I went as close as I'm fine going. The lights were low enough to where I don't think anybody saw anything. No, no one saw the wrinkles on your penis. Like what what does the lighting have to do with <laughs> like basically you can see you can get like a vague outline of it. I'm down with like an imprint, but as soon as you can like make out the act no. They they won't be able to identify it in a lineup. Right. Show dick is a real thing. It just shrivels and goes internal. I mentioned earlier that my conversation with Dahlia Fatal was on the heels of her victory in Vegas. And my chat with Eva Lafiva also happened the day after a major career milestone. The previous night was the first show at a theater she had just relaunched as a burlesque performance space. Under the Gun Theater in the Wrigleyville neighborhood of Chicago. I've been putting 12-hour days into getting it ready, and I've had a team of people helping me. And last night, I mean, just down to the minute, we were still sweeping and mopping and getting everything ready. And like four or five people were just like, what can I do? Let's move tables. Let's get things ready. And the show started happening. And my one friend, Dusty Balls, who is an incredible drag king in Chicago, started performing this act, and it was my favorite act I've ever seen them perform ever hands down. And I just started sobbing because I was like, Oh God, like this is what we've been working so hard is to have like a space where we can put the type of art that we want to do on stage because for so long we've been working in venues where they're like, yeah, but can you make that a little less queer or like, yeah, but can you make that a little more sparkly lady or like, you know, our audiences don't want to see that. And I want this space to be like, audiences do want to see that and we just have to give places to show it and and to condition audiences like 
you didn't even know you wanted to see this, but now you saw this and look at what, and look what you got out of it, you know? And that was a real moment where it felt really good that the work that we've been putting in here has paid off. And I could start to see the potential of what we could potentially offer to artists in this community. And it made me like ugly sob. I was out there and I was like, (laughs) and then I came backstage and I was just, I went up to Dusty and I was like, you can't change a thing about that act. It's perfect. I can't believe that just happened on this stage. And I'm just so grateful. And like, it was gross, but I was, I was just overwhelmed. Can you describe the act a little bit? It was a chair act where they brought someone up on stage to sit on a chair and he starts the act across the stage and he's just slowly making his way across to like, you know, do the sexy chair dance for this person sitting in the chair. But he doesn't get to the chair until like five minutes into the act. So it's just this slow, like super musical striptease, you know, where he's like, you know, flipping up the edge of his tie in time to the music or just like unbuttoning a button and like, but, but it's just one of those things that it's, it's a, it's a six minute tease. Like you're just waiting for him to get to the chair and do the lap dance with the person, but he doesn't rush it. He takes his time. Until, it's a real slow burn, right? It's truly a slow burn, but he's a very comedic performer and, and his drag character is, as it was described to me, like what the ideal man should be. It's somebody who empowers women and loves women and it's kind of goofy and lovable. And, you know, again, it's not, you know, super suave, sexy man. It's this goofy, lovable, you know, but very sexy, I will say, you know, presentation of masculinity. And, and so the whole thing, it's, you know, I was laughing through to your, it was one of those laughing, but you're turned on too. you're like, this is so ridiculous. And so perfect, because that's what great burlesque to me is, it's like, I didn't even know that someone could spend five minutes slowly making their way across the floor to strip for somebody and that it would be this funny and this impactful and like I don't know because sex is weird you know sex is awkward like sex is can be gross and strange and or like present you know like it's never it's not always beautiful and flawless like sometimes it's goofy and and I like seeing that presented in conjunction with performance that's meant to be consumed as sexual in some regard you know Eva envisions Under the Gun Theater as a place for fringe entertainment, meaning work that is challenging and weird, the exact opposite of sanitized. Under the Gun is also a great place to see people featured in this episode. Both Dahlia and Willie performed that first night with Dusty Balls. We will link to Under the Gun Theater as well as the individual sites for the various performers you've heard from on this show. As I said before, Rev Spooky is based in New Orleans and everyone else is in Chicago, but many of these folks tour and might come to a city near you really soon. So check out the links in the show notes and at sexwithstrangersshow.com. One of the things I went into this episode wondering was whether the burlesque performers we've heard from who also dance or have danced in strip clubs believe they face stigma or discrimination within burlesque. I was happy to hear that was not the case, at least for the people I spoke with. But ironically enough, where I heard people say they've witnessed some anti-stripper bias is in the pole dancing world. There, for a while, there was this hashtag going around a couple of years ago, and it still is, um, called Not a Stripper, which is like 
I pole dance, but I'm not a stripper. I'm better than that. But it's funny because when I first heard that hashtag, I thought that they were using it to just say like, I pole dance, but I'm not a stripper. Like, I'm not that great. I'm not good. <laughs> like, like, I mean, that's not, hilarious. You thought they were yeah. like, it was a modesty thing. Yeah. It's just like, I'm a pole dancer, but it hasn't gone to my head. So, yeah. <laughs> or just like, I, I, that's not my job. You know, like I pole dance, but I'm, I'm not, you know, my profession is not stripping and I don't want to like confuse anybody like or take credit for something. Um, that's how I, th- I saw it. And then someone was like, oh, I'm so offended. I'm like, oh, that's what they mean. I'm better than a stripper yeah. is what they're saying. <laughs> Which I, I hate that shit because come on, like you're, you're culturally appropriating us. You're taking something that we made and then you're, you're, you know, performing it or teaching it, learning it, whatever. And then you're bashing the people that made it. You don't get to do that. I teach at a pole studio and a lot of my students are prepping for competitions. And one of them pulled me aside and told me the rules of this one competition they're doing. And it's things like you cannot touch yourself on stage. You cannot gyrate in a certain way. And I was like, what are they doing? Like, I got mad. (laughs) And she had to, like, make me go sit down because I was so upset at this idea that, like, you're in a pole dancing competition and you can't sexualize the work that you're doing. But it comes from a sexual place. And also, who are they to dictate what kind of art you can create regardless of, like... I have seen young girls in dance competitions do more explicit things than they allow these women to do in a pole competition. And that's just infuriating to me. But luckily, that attitude is not at all universal within competitive pole dancing. And so what are these pole dancing competitions like? There's a lot of them now. Um, I think like back in the day, uh, they kind of came from like strip club competitions and then, you know, once pole became mainstream. Sort of like amateur night? Yeah. What, are there different types of competitions in strip clubs there are. as well? Yeah. There, well, amateur nights were like really big in like the 80s and early 90s. But I think as the industry has changed, like there's just less of them. There used to be like actual strip club competitions where, they, it would, you know, they'd have a lineup of girls and see who could slay the pole the best. And then you get your money, you know, now it's, you know, it's taken out of the clubs and it's a little bit more sterilized. So there's like regulations and rules and costume requirements and you have to you know pick your music and it's, you know, much more regulated. So um, it's, and, it's become a little bit more of a pageant maybe. Yes. I would say it's most like a pageant or like doing like a bodybuilding competition. Like the format is similar in in that sense to it because there's like a point system and depending on which category you're in you have to meet a certain requirement a percentage of points when you're when you're pole dancing competitively versus doing it in the club in both cases you're trying to impress the audience for For different reasons Mm -hmm. but what are the differences in your approach oh it's so opposite when you're uh, doing competitive pole dancing because the people that are judging you know the sport, they know when when a trick is hard. They know when it's easy. And a lot of times the things that look very hard are actually easy and vice versa. So the way that someone would compete at a pole dancing competition is very different from the way that they would perform for a club. People in strip clubs love things that are so easy, like an inside leg hang or like a drop split. It, that's what makes you money and that's the easy shit. But you know, at a pole dancing competition, like it doesn't matter if you do that. They want to see the new Instagram trick of the week where you put your foot on your head and bend yourself in half. Like that's what gets you points. But um, you do that in a club and people are like, I don't get it. <laughs> 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 What's going on? 
So, so what you're saying is that people in the club are too dumb to realize. They're like, not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> They're not dumb. I, I mean, like, I meant that sort of facetiously. Well, you have but, to understand, like, like the environment. There's loud music. There's tits everywhere. There's a distraction everywhere you look. So if something's going to keep your attention. It has to make noise. It has to go really fast or spin around or there has to be lots of hair or like, I don't know. There has to be something that stands out. And a lot of times, like the really complicated pole dance competition tricks with elaborate setups. By the time you get to the trick, people are already bored. You know, like drunk people don't have an attention span for that. Now, you mentioned sort of incorporating character into mm-hmm. your strip club persona. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um do you do the the same thing when you're competitively pole dancing? Like, is that a specific character you're playing when you're competing? Um, or is that just Lisa? I think that's, I think a little bit of those characters are parts of me. I don't think I'm ever trying to do a, a competition piece. That's my, that's my problem and why I never win anything because I don't care enough to win for being like the best athlete or the best competitor. Like, I don't care about the title. Like, I just want to get up on stage and, and tell a story um, because usually when I perform, there's something in there, there's a message that I'm trying to communicate to people that are watching and like, that's more of my focus. So I usually do compete with a character. It, it seems yeah. like you're kind of giving a little bit of a burlesque feel to mm-hmm. your pole dancing. And maybe that's not universal. Maybe a lot of people are more into just like, I'm going to show you how many complicated things I can do yeah. and sort of rack up the points. It is kind of like that. But I think the competitions have noticed that that can be redundant and they're trying to incorporate more theatrical stuff into the, the competition pieces. So there's room for it now. It's just hard to judge that. It's hard to put points on like artistry. It's, right. it's very subjective. So that's why I kind of don't care. Competitive pole dancing events happen all over the world. So if that is something you're interested in seeing, there's a good chance a simple Google search will help you make that a reality. Just don't expect to see Lisa among the competitors anytime soon because right now she is focused on making money dancing at strip clubs here in Chicago and across the US. One difference between burlesque and stripping is the amount of skin dancers generally show. Burlesque performers typically strip down to... Pasties and a thong or a merkin, like a thong with no Right, because you can have full ass out, but just no front. Mm -hmm. In my experience, strip club dancers usually at least show their nipples, and many get fully nude. But in the actual city limits of Chicago, only two out of the three strip clubs, where women dance at least, are allowed to show nipples by virtue of not serving alcohol. So the club that does serve alcohol, Rick's Cabaret, formerly VIPs, has to follow all of these really stupid rules, including making dancers cover themselves from the areola down, so not just pasties, And they also can't wear thongs. They have to wear regulation bottoms, which I've been told cover about three-fourths of their butts. This, once again, is all very stupid and a big reason why most of the strip clubs here are located outside of the city limits. But one thing I learned making this show is that these same rules also apply to burlesque. So that entire description Porcelain gave of what she typically strips down to during burlesque shows is technically illegal. 
in venues with liquor licenses in the city of Chicago. This has been largely ignored for a long time, luckily, but some recent complaints by concerned citizens scandalized by the presence of underboob or whatever have unfortunately brought these laws back into focus. There was two Just like, incidents. Who calls the police after seeing a butt cheek? That's well, what I'd like to know. I'd like to meet that person. Well, again, that's the kind of the drawback of surprise burlesque. If you go out and you're not expecting to see burlesque, and let's say you're somebody that isn't comfortable with seeing sexuality or you're not comfortable with your own sexuality or like, you know, the one thing I've learned with burlesque is that it brings up people's really deep-seated feelings about sex, not only towards others, but themselves or, or sexuality, you know? So some people, you know, I can understand, like, if you were raised very puritanical or, you know, very religious or whatever, and, and you you are not comfortable with seeing sexual expressions, and you go to a place and all of a sudden something happens that you're not prepared for, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm also like, yeah, I can see that happening. You know, if you're going to a, a theater and you're seeing... You bought a ticket for a burlesque show and then you're upset that there's burlesque. I mean, that's a little it's something different. But, you know, some people are like, I just want to eat my appetizer and drink my drink and not have somebody draping a glove over me. I can I can appreciate that. But, yeah, I'm kind of a little angry that people are complaining. And now all of a sudden, I think a couple of venues have had some crackdowns and then other venues are kind of like, let's play it safe and also make sure that we're enforcing that. I also raised this issue with Bendy Man to see if the boylesque world is also experiencing any kind of crackdown. I was just having this conversation with um, my photographer for the show, Peter. We were just literally just talking about this yesterday. And yeah, it's it's insane. And, you know, he was sort of in the moment, I think, trying to play devil's advocate and sort of, you know, talk about, well, like it could be X, Y, Z. And Tell I, him I said fuck off. Well, no, I mean, he definitely <laughs> totally he definitely doesn't think that. <laughs> but I like immediately did like kind of cut him off. And I was like, I can walk into the Art Institute and look at a statue and like like I can I can see full everything nipple and it's everywhere in in my daily life. Like. If a woman, you know, can, and I know this is controversial for some people, but if a woman can nurse, you know what I mean, at a restaurant and it's not a big deal, then then none and of it this shouldn't be a big should deal. be a big deal. Because it's just the human body. Yeah. It's like when, you know, I go back to that, the 2003 Super Bowl with Janet Jackson's nipple. <laughs> and it's just Don't like, talk about nipple gate with me. I'm a huge Janet Jackson fan and I'm very, I have a lot of opinions. It um, kind of destroyed her career. <laughs> it did destroy, well... She's making a comeback now, um, and I think she's thought of in the same way now, but it has taken her how long to get there, and at the time, it definitely destroyed her career. Um, and it was just like no one was harmed. People are like calling because no, of the children, no. and it's just like children are born wanting to put nipples into their mouths. <laughs> Nipples have done nothing but great things for children. Maybe that's why everyone's Shut the fuck up. Because they think that people are just going to run open-mouthed at any nipple that they see. <laughs> but um, <laughs> maybe that's what... I don't know what the fear is, but maybe that's what the fear is. Is it affecting predominantly male shows as well? Or are they just focusing on women's I think there's bodies? a fear that it may start to affect. It definitely hasn't yet. Um, I think that there is a fear. We also talked about this last night um, that it may it may start to affect male shows as well because um, I don't know if you're aware, but there are regulations about what we can and cannot show as well. And a lot of times female burlesque performers can get away with showing um, bare ass or being, you know, uh, showing the backside of themselves pretty freely without any issue. 
but uh, people are a little more restrictive about that when it comes to men. Are, are there laws that say like no man butts? Well, it's basically a strap. Like you have to have a strap. Um, like will a jock strap work? A no. Size. Okay, so no. a thong has to be down the middle because there has a lot to of be a certain width supposedly. And so I know a lot of male burlesque performers that kind of throw caution to the wind and never worry about that. Um, and you know, they're right to do that in a sense that you know that's usually in a lot of cases how it works for the female burlesquers that they're working alongside and that they're you know in some instances emulating so i get that on the one hand but this the same you know flip side of that is that it technically is illegal one quick correction nipplegate actually occurred at the 2004 super bowl returning to the topic of butts on the one hand, I was hearing that legally speaking in Chicago, no one can show full butt during burlesque performances and that women actually need to cover at least three fourths of their butts, even though men just need to cover their cracks with straps, as Ben put it. But I had trouble verifying this since no one I spoke with seemed to have actually read the law or laws at the center of this issue. And that's largely because these rules are particularly difficult to Google if you're not a lawyer. So after giving up on the internet, I decided to go on a little field trip to the Cook County Law Library where I found the, these giant books with Chicago Municipal Codes and found the relevant code, which is 4-60-140, section D. And it's very clear that Chicago does not discriminate between man butts, lady butts, or non-binary butts. It treats all butts equally. And the city wants all the different kinds of butts covered with fabric during burlesque performances. And I hesitate to say this because I'm worried this is gonna break Ben's heart, but I'm pretty sure that whole strap regulation is not a thing. As far as I can tell, if you actually want to perform in accordance with the law, which I don't think you should. But if you do, your best bet is probably heading over to Rick's Cabaret and picking up some of those regulation bottoms, which I'm sure your audience will hate. We will link to where you can read this municipal code yourself if you feel like it. Now that I know how to Google it, I can link to it. I, I was not expecting the word perineum appears twice in the regulation. So it's it's pretty sexy reading, you guys. Now, luckily, these dumb laws are generally neither followed nor enforced when it comes to burlesque. But the recent crackdown is making a lot of performers nervous here in Chicago. Eva doesn't like these laws or the crackdown, but this issue also isn't gonna keep her up at night. Burlesque really isn't about the body parts anyway. You know, like it's not about how naked can I? I mean, I guess it's it's different things to different people. But I think if you're watching burlesque just for the body parts, you're missing a huge component of what the performance is meant to convey and what it is supposed to mean. It's again, like it's it's that drag king walking across the stage, taking like two minutes to unbutton a shirt. And by the time the shirt comes off, you're like, oh, my God, the shirt came off. It's finally off, you know. That it's it's not about like okay when can I see boobs when are when are boobs gonna pop up like and honestly people that are watching it for that like there's not much you can do because that's what you know you can't control how people consume what you put out there 
And it seems like the core burlesque audience is interested in much more than boobs. They're there for a lot of reasons. But I also think most things are simply better when boobs are involved. Burlesque very much included. Ben often encounters a similar attitude from fans of boylesque who think the art form definitely needs more dong. I personally get a lot of messages from people that are confused or um, concerned that I don't show full frontal. And so I don't know exactly where that comes from, but it's something that I experience a lot. Um, like a how, lot how many messages like that do you think you've received? Oh, a lot over the over the years of doing ball, this. Ball ton. How many individual messages have I received where, I, where they've specifically said, like, why aren't you showing peen? Hmm. I would put it in a ballpark of like 50 to 70 that's, over the course of like four years intense. of that's doing intense. the show. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And so it's just funny. I and, you know, I'll get people that they'll message me and say, how naked do you get? And I always am kind of like, you know, cheeky with them. And I'm like, 97% naked, you know? And they're like, ooh, what's the 3%? And I'm like, I think you can figure out what the 3% is. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a weird thing. And I think specifically with gay men, I think they they might be a little too, you know, like uh, conditioned to just expect to see full nudity in their, you know, lives. I don't know. I want to thank everyone who spoke with me for this episode, including a couple of folks we did not hear from in the actual show. Special thanks, as always, to Sean Payne and Louis DeMeo for all that you do, and to Ben Jordan, the Flashbulb, for our theme music. We will be back soon, and in the meantime, maybe I will see some of you in New Mexico or Maine or somewhere in between, because there's a lot in between those two places. Adios. You know, You've never you, been booed? Uh, I don't think so. I've had I've I'd had one awful performance where there was like a round of pity claps that was almost worse. Where I was like, I just just boo me. That was the what, worst performance. What I'd, happened? Uh, oh God, what didn't happen? So almost instantly, I tried to take off a skirt and I got my feet caught and I belly flopped onto the stage and not in a cute way. And <laughs> can you can you cutely belly flop? Sometimes you can kind of fall but turn it into like a dramatic slide right. or something. But that was not what happened and. Uh, I let out like, you know, and, and then later on in the act, you know, a costume piece got stuck in my tights and I couldn't get it off. And so then I had a great idea that I was going to take off my stockings, even though I've never done a stocking reveal, um, on stage and forgot that I was wearing garter belt and that I had shoes that had to unbuckle. And so the performance ends and I've like one shoe on one stocking on, didn't even get to my bra at that point, you know, and I just shrugged at the audience. I was just like, I <laughs> And and that's when they pity clapped. And it was, you know, you could tell that they were like, you know, that is hard to get up there and do that. And like, bless her heart. She really gave it the college try. And that was a little. She was so brave. She, yeah. Again, the, the she was so brave is it's the kiss of death. It's the like. It's it's like when I used to do stand up. I remember I had a really bad set in front of like some friends of mine. And it was like, I think their first time seeing me do stand up. And I remember my friend was just like, you were so confident. She just kept saying that over and over again. Yeah, I was just so impressed with just how confident you were. Yeah. And you're like, that's not really a compliment. <laughs> you're like, that's a... if, if my confidence is standing out so much, it's because it's in contrast with everything else that's going on. With me more so, it's more the difference between burlesque and drag. 
because I interact with that world a little bit more. I love and respect my stripper sisters and moms, but that's just like, that's a world that I feel very removed from. And burlesque is like kind of the closest I've gotten to it. Stripper moms just sounds like like an AVN nominee. <laughs> well, I would definitely purchase that. <laughs> <laughs> 